Hey everyone, just a few things before we start the show. Number one, I want to mention that our ITB iOS beta app is actually out now, thankfully, and after a long time, it's finally here. So please click the link in the show notes or search the app store for Inside the Boards, all one word. Download the app. It's got meditations to help you keep those stress levels down during your USMLE Step 1 dedicated prep time or at any point during med school. We've got all our podcasts on there, including an enhanced version of the Step 2 Secrets podcast. And of course, our all-audio QBank is there if you want to study on the go. There's a Step 1 and a Step 2 version with sample sets for each version. So please download it. We're working on a full-scale app for Android and iOS, which we'll release in the summer. But for now, please download, give us your feedback, and help us make this truly the best audio resource for your USMLE, Comlex, and med school examination preparation. Also, Alyssa wanted me to clarify a few things. One, she actually said benign prostatic hypertrophy, and she just wanted to make sure that you guys understand that the correct term is benign prostatic hyperplasia. And then finally, we just want to congratulate Alyssa. She matched as an internal medicine resident at Stanford. So congratulations, Alyssa. We're excited to have Alyssa on our show. If you want to learn more about USMLE Pro, of course, go to usmlepro.com. Let's get started. I've been on a low, I've been taking my time. I feel like I'm out of my mind. It feel like my life ain't mine. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman. Your host, board-certified OBGYN, former director of undergraduate medical education at Online MedEd, former philosophy professor, and chief question officer for Inside the Boards. Today's episode, we are interviewing Alyssa Ehrlich from USMLE Pro. But before we start the show, a quick message from our sponsor, Common Bond. This spring, we're partnering with Common Bond. Their goal? to make student loans simpler and more affordable. They just launched a new loan for medical students, and ITB listeners are some of the first to hear about it. The loan is designed to save medical students thousands of dollars over the Federal Grad Plus loan, but it's not just about savings with Common Bond. They know med students have unique needs. They've tailored this loan program to offer flexible repayment to help you focus on your residency program, and they've got your back, as well as having the back of children in the developing world through their Social Promise program, because every time they fund a loan, they also fund the education of a child in need. In an upcoming episode, and over on our Study Smarter channel, as well as the Medical Nemesis podcast, you'll hear from Pete Wiley, Common Bond's VP of Student Lending, with more about Common Bond and how they can help you during your medical education. And remember, when you support Inside the Board sponsors, you support ITB and help us continue the work that we do. So I really appreciate that. I know sometimes people don't like ads on podcasts, but we are committed to working only with companies that offer products and services that help you live your life, care about your needs, and provide value 
to you during your medical education. Common Bond is one of those companies. Go to commonbond.co slash ITB to learn more. Stay tuned to the end for a few more important announcements, including how you can get your USMLE or Comlax board registration paid for. And now, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. Today, I have Alyssa Ehrlich here from USMLE Pro. She is the founder of that platform and uh, has done more than that. And I will let her kind of give her background and we'll get into that during some of the interview. But Alyssa, welcome and thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, dive into some questions today. Yeah. So quick, like kind of one liner. uh, What do you do? Who are you? What's your summary? That's a really interesting question. So I uh, grew up on Long Island. I went to college uh, at Columbia and studied neuroscience and philosophy, went straight through to you medical school. You studied philosophy? I did study philosophy. So that's why I love that question. Oh my gosh, that's so awesome. I have a master's degree in philosophy and taught philosophy for a year before matriculating to med school. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. We're going to get real off topic. Oh, yeah, we definitely are. And actually, a few listeners have emailed me and been like, can you throw more philosophy in there? You should do like a, a podcast that covers like philosophical and intellectual topics. And man, I would like to do that. And I'm, I'm thinking about it in the background. But right now, I got to focus on the medicine, which I'm sure. Yeah, we can't, we can't do that oh, right now. Oh, <laughs> anyone who gets that joke wins uh, uh, something free. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for that. That that was pretty awesome. Now I'm going to be like challenged to come up with an equally excellent pun. But sorry, I interrupted you because you made me so excited. A fellow philosopher. All right. So you studied philosophy, then went to med school. Where? Uh, I'm at med school at Harvard. I'm a fourth year right now. Um, I took a research year to do some translational uh, hepatology research and to also work on USMLE Pro, which we can talk about more later. But I applied for uh, internal medicine residency this cycle, couples matching also in internal medicine uh, with my fiance, and we will find out in 23 days where we're going to live for the next three years. That's right. It's uh, mid-February. The match is coming up. Well, good luck on that. That's a stressful time. Yeah, you should just cut this out of the recording if I don't match anywhere. (laughs) I'm sure you'll match. Well, before we get into the the deeper parts of this interview and and probably more philosophy, at least accidentally, let's go through a question and do some learning. Uh, We have today a question thanks to Online MedEd. A 22-year-old patient brought to the emergency department after having decreased urinary output for three days. He has a history of intellectual disability and is deaf and lives in a group home. Staff at the home report that he has been incontinent uh, with loose, non-bloody stools for the past two days. He is tired and ill-appearing on exam with a temperature of 38.9 Celsius, which is 102 Fahrenheit, a heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 100 over 60, and a respiratory rate of 24. Physical examination further shows dry mucous membranes and mild diffuse tenderness on abdominal palpation. His serum creatinine is 2.4 and BUN is 60. Fully catheter is placed and his urinary output is monitored after admission and there is no urine produced for six hours. 
And the interrogatory here is, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? We've got A, urine microscopy, B, urine creatinine and sodium, C, normal saline, D, IV furosemide, or E, renal ultrasound. All right, so how do we approach this? Yeah, so I think that when I see a question like this, I first ask myself, what are they testing here? And I think the overall knowledge that you're supposed to have and the framework that you're supposed to apply is what is the etiology of acute injury here? Is it pre-renal, is it intrarenal, or is it post-renal? Um, and I'll go through the details why this is an extremely strong case for a pre-renal injury and sort of go through my framework, which is that almost every piece of information in the vignette is important. Yeah. Things are there for a reason, whether they're positive values or whether they're negative values. But here, if we go through chronologically, which is like how I like to dissect the vignette, we have a 22-year-old decreased urinary output. That's the chief complaint. He's intellectual disability. Why did they mention that, right? It's not going to be not relevant. So here I'm thinking he can't communicate perhaps his need for water um, or his thirst. And the staff says he's incontinent of loose non-bloody stool for the past two days. So that sounds like potentially a viral gastroenteritis. Again, why did they mention that? One of the reasons that people can become volume depleted is that they are not taking in enough water or their body is putting out too much water. Diarrhea is definitely a way to put too much water out of the body. Um, he's tired and ill appearing. Okay, we, we would expect that. A little bit of a fever, tachycardic, slightly low blood pressure. At this point, I start thinking, should I be concerned about sepsis here? It's kind of low on my differential based on the, the other symptoms that he's having, and they're not giving me sort of other lab values that would make me think of that. Dry mucous membranes, making an even stronger case for volume depletion. The thing that confuses students here on this kind of question is the mild diffuse tenderness to abdominal palpation. For some reason, people think when this is a kidney question, they think, oh, the abdominal pain is related to a urinary tract infection, pyelonephritis, or, oh, there's abdominal pain because there's a stone. Here, what they're trying to get you to see is that this is his precipitating factor for prerenal esotemia, which is the ultimate diagnosis here. That's a big thing that confuses students because they're trying to make sense. Why is this abdominal pain relevant? And you just have to remember that, yes, this person has two things going on, but it's just to give him an etiology for his acute kidney injury. Yeah. His serum creatinine of 2.4 and BUN to 60, that's really all the information we need here. You can check my math on this, but I believe that's a BUN to creatinine ratio of 25 to 1, which is definitely elevated. Anything over 20 to, 20 to 1 BUN creatinine ratio should make you think of a pre-renal etiology. Um, and it's helpful often for students to know that that's because you have increased reabsorption of urea in what I like to call sodium avid states. So as long as the kidney's working and the kidney knows it needs more fluid, it's going to reabsorb more sodium, reabsorb more water, reabsorb more urea. The one other state in which you can have a very elevated BUN would be a GI bleed, but We've seen in the vignette, it says non-bloody. There's no mention of melana. Um, and the BUN you know, might be even higher in that, that situation. And that's not what the question is asking us about. Why do they talk about a Foley catheter here? Why do they talk about monitoring his urine output? Because they're telling you this is not post-renal, right? Pre-renal azotemia, being volume depleted as this gentleman is, is the most common etiology of acute kidney injury. 
But another thing to think about in the outpatient setting, if this patient was on medications, anticholinergic medications, psychiatric medications that could cause urinary retention, or if he were older and he had something like benign prostatic hypertrophy, you could be thinking about a post-renal etiology. So this is kind of a slam dunk for pre-renal azotemia. What do you do? You fix the problem. He is going to get normal saline in the emergency department. That's why that's the answer. I love that. And, you know, you had said like, initially you're thinking like, ah, maybe there's this sepsis picture going on or that they're trying to set up, although not strongly convincing because they don't give you labs relevant to that, like uh, elevated white blood cell count or still, this is part of clinical medicine. Like he has a problem that is fundamental in affecting his vitals, which are vital to both your diagnosis and the direction of your treatment. And regardless of the diagnosis or etiology of what's causing this, the next step in management, love these questions, is going to be IV fluid replacement with normal saline. Yeah. And I think that that one thing that trips people up is they're like, well, I'm not sure, like maybe he's septic, this or that. Either way, you're going to get saline in the emergency department. You're going to get that IV. And I think the other thing to think about is the language that they're choosing, right? These dry mucous membranes. So often when that comes up, the right best next step in management is IV saline. And I think a lot of times students make this more complicated than it it has to be. I think students are worrying about, oh, is this acute tubular necrosis? Is that ATN? Do I have to do a FEMA or a fractional excretion of sodium? In this case, I mean, I get tachycardic when I start thinking about that. So as I read (laughs) through the vignette, like I'm like, oh, no, I'm gonna have to calculate a FINA. Oh, thank God. That's not. (laughs) Yeah. So here they they don't even make you do it. So no need to get a urine, creatinine and sodium here. Maybe if he doesn't improve with fluids, then you want to start investigating for intrarenal etiologies. But this is actually going to be really simple. And I, I asked students to just think about their, you know, when they're preparing for step two, think about their own clinical experience, what does almost everyone get? They get normal saline in in a situation like that. So this is a pretty straightforward question. I think the answer choice that probably confuses people the most is IV furosemide. Why would you give diuretics in a case like this? There are situations in which someone has like congestive heart failure and that's why they have renal failure and they might get Lasix or they might have have hepatorenal syndrome and they're getting albumin and Lasix to try to get some of that ascites off. Um, but that really does not come up that much on the USMLE. It's really, I, I have rarely seen that be a correct answer choice that people have to give IV furosemide um, for acute renal injury in a case where someone's intravascularly dry, but total volume up. So that's something to think about. And renal ultrasound, obviously, you would do to uh, evaluate things like hydronephrosis. Uh, a confusing point for students is, what am I going to do with CT versus a renal ultrasound? Generally, renal ultrasound is better to see things like hydronephrosis versus a CT is really good for seeing, is better for seeing stones, kidney stones, Um, nephrolithiasis, we're seeing nephrolithiasis. So, and urine microscopy, lots of uses for that. But here, this is, you know, relatively simple question. And the biggest mistake I see students making on something like this is really overthinking it. When you have that BUN to creatinine ratio greater than 20 to one, and you have those dry mucous membranes, it's, it's pre-renal azotemia and you need to give them fluids. All right. Any other high-yield pearls here, or can we leave this as the takeaway? Yeah, I think the only other thing to reiterate is it, just because there's abdominal pain doesn't mean that that is you know, related to 
Um, the kidney injury, it just could be that the diarrhea and viral gastroenteritis is a precipitating factor. And that's something that trips people up. But um, once you, you see it and you go through it once, people usually keep it straight. All right, cool. Well, we're going to have some more question dissections from perhaps you, but at least a few on your team over on our Study Smarter channel in the near future. So look for that. Uh, but for today, let's talk about USMLE Pro, your journey throughout medical education. I'll try not to focus too much on the philosophy as much as I want to. And then you can uh, just kind of give us a feel for why you're doing what you're doing and things of that nature. So does that sound good? Yeah, that sounds great. All right. Um, so you went, I think, oh, yeah, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, after you, you're the guest. Oh, thank you. Yes. So I think that it honestly all started for me um, growing up. My mom's a photography teacher, but I really didn't start teaching myself that much until college. I was a biology TA and I did a lot of test prep tutoring standardized tests, multiple choice tests were something that had, you know, come easy to me. And I really was interested in psychology and the psychology of tests. And the way that I took tests, I felt was very different from the way that other people took tests when I would teach them. And it was just really rewarding to me to show people, oh, this is how you can outsmart a multiple choice question. You can take someone who knows the material really well, and they can, you know, show what they learn and do much better. Um, and I think the other thing that I saw is that people used a lot of study strategies that were maybe not uh, the most efficient. And in my time doing sort of neuroscience and psychology as one of my majors, I was taking a lot of psychology classes and learning about ways in which people have better recall and better retention and realizing that the way people were studying, you know, reading books over and over again, highlighting them was not a very good way. So especially once I got into medical school, spaced repetition became very important for me using programs like Anki and doing really active learning of making my own flashcards and making study guides, doing practice questions and really staying away from just reading books over and over again. And I think once I moved into doing USMLE tutoring, I first kind of was doing it independently. And I realized that, you know, we could really change the way that people were studying and make them study a lot more efficiently. And also that this was such a distressing time for people. And that was something that I felt really passionate about was working with students with test taking anxiety. I had worked for other big companies before and I found that they offered almost no guidance for how to help the students do well. And I think they, you know, I, I worked for a company that they just sort of was like, oh yeah, you have great scores you have this experience, sounds good. My experience was that, you know, in medical school, there are plenty of really brilliant people who don't necessarily teach effectively. So that I thought was something that people also needed is it's really hard to find people with really high scores, but it's even harder to find people who are passionate about teaching and who can do it really well and are invested in getting even better. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of, you know, where this all came to be and it kind of snowballed of, you know, myself and one other person who was doing a lot of tutoring you know, joining together and had an interest in website design and some of the other aspects of this. And, and now we have about 30 tutors who are doing this and kind of teaching under a more unified philosophy and working sort of together as a more collective group and pooling our experience, talking to each other, making sure we have a lot of guidance and kind of talking really openly about some of the issues that students are facing and make sure they get support for things like test taking anxiety and feel like they have a, a team of people who are near peers who really want to support them and see them do well, not people who are several years removed from the test and don't realize how incredibly stressful and career determining it has become. 
Um, and it's just been an extremely rewarding and crazy ride, uh, kind of how quickly everything started. But, you know, it's so rewarding to me to get those testimonials from people and people get the score that they wanted or they just feel like they're finally not alone in this anymore. I firmly believe that everyone learns really differently. So that's why I like individualized education. But yeah, it's, you know, it's a long, long way of saying it. It's been really, really fun and amazing for me to do. And I'm glad I've had the opportunity and really great people to work with and, and really great students who I'm lucky to have the privilege to work with. Yeah, that. so that sounds awesome. Um, you said before there that it's like shocking or something, like how quickly things started moving. So when did all yeah. this start? So I took my own step two exam. It must have been... December of 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of the, the impulse to get back into test prep tutoring once I had sort of more time and was doing a research year, it all convened in, in January of last year. Um, and in terms of bringing on other tutors, I think that was March of last year. So it's been, been around a year of going from sort of just me tutoring independently to now having 30 um, people, 30, 30 people. So obviously it, awesome. it gets us more busy. Um, and I'm really fortunate to have amazing people who are going to support me as I go into residency, hopefully. But yeah, the most rewarding thing for me is, is like talking to the students and letting people know that it's okay that you're distressed and that you can talk to us about it and that it's not a failing or a fault that you struggle with these exams. They're not a good measure of how good of a physician you're going to become. Some people just happen to think in a way that they do really well on the test and other people, it's more of a struggle and they think more broadly and in terms of possibilities, it's, it's really challenging for those people. So we're kind of helping connect people who happen to do really well on these exams with people who happen to struggle on them and make things a little bit less painful for the people taking the test. God, I love that so much. I mean, that is like if not the subtext of inside the boards, the very like explicit mission that, that we have too is, is like you can't just focus on like learning the content, the knowledge. We treat, or at least we're supposed to treat patients as, you know, whole persons, but you have to treat students like that, you know, when, when you're an educator, when you're in charge of a medical school, you have to treat them as a whole person too. Uh, medicine is a, a moral community, my mentor, Dr. Ed Pellegrino, used to say. And to me, that makes sense. Like, it goes back to the Hippocratic Oath. You have to hold your those who taught you this art in esteem and freely teach it uh, to those who want to learn it. And I guess in a modern context, it's like, care about these people because it is a big sacrifice. It's hugely stressful and anxiety provoking. And it takes a lot from you to be put under the pressure oftentimes that people are when it comes to studying for something like step one or studying for a shelf and then switching rotations and then studying for another shelf and being told you know you have to get this score you have to do this well if you want to achieve your dreams and and it, it's too like simplistic number one and it's nice to see other companies out there who aren't just companies, but, you know, really platforms that are, are trying to be mentors and, and coaches and um, to stand with people who are in need of help. So kudos. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like you, you definitely hear what our mission and our, our message is. And I think a lot of 
this is just, you know, everyone has a different mindset. We try to be really growth minded about everything and, and feel like students can improve their test taking ability. They can improve their memory. They can improve how they study because, you know, we've seen it. And it's unfortunate that medical schools don't sort of provide the resources to help people take tests well because right. it's sort of, uh, <laughs> it's a big part of our career. And, you know, for people like me who that's like one of my strengths is doing well in exams, that works out well for me. And for other people who are going to become amazing physicians, it's a huge hurdle and a really difficult thing. The good news is there, you know, there's people out there like you guys who, who want to help um, people do better, and there definitely are out, uh, ways to outsmart some of these vignettes. Uh, I think the one that we did today is one of the easier ones, but even for the tricky ones, there's ways to do it. So all those listeners out there shouldn't lose hope. Don't lose hope. That's that's a good message. That Man, that should be... That should be the uh, entire message of medical school. Don't lose hope. I myself was not a good test taker, then became one. And I love what you said, too. And this has been said so many times on this podcast. Like, these tests really are not a measure of how good a doctor you're going to be. They're not a measure of how many lives you're going to change, how many, you know, diagnoses that are terrible that you're going to communicate and make just a little bit more bearable for someone than another doctor who may have got a 280 on step one, but has no personality or ability to connect with people, which in itself is very oftentimes therapeutic. I know from my own experience, the people who taught me, specifically like my top three like teachers clinically, they all failed one of the USMLE step exams. And they like I learned how to be a doctor from them and to, you know, operate effectively uh, in surgery and things that like, you know, I think medical students or, or uh, people who aren't yet in the thick of the clinical environment probably equate. Oh, yeah, this great surgeon probably is like so amazing or did so well on their exams when like that's not necessarily true at all at best the boards are a necessary evil to quote dustin williams usmle <laughs> uh-oh we're gonna have to bleep bleep the podcast we will bleep that out because i don't want to have to change our tags Rating. on the podcast to explicit <laughs> Plus, mm -hmm. apparently, sometimes my kids listen to this, which I, oh. I don't know why, because <laughs> they're like, my daughter will be 14. I got a 12-year-old, 6-year-old, so I got to keep it clean. Maybe we'll do Inside the Boards Uncensored someday. Where yeah, Inside the Boards After Dark. Yeah, I like we it. We could do that. Like All right. So um, you found a passion in helping others learn and overcome some of the difficulties they have in showing what they've learned on tests. But why specifically another, quote, tutoring company when there's others out there? What makes USMLE Pro unique and different from other tutoring services out there? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think the two biggest areas would be the, the mindset and the mission. So in terms of mindset, I, I talked a little bit before about how we're really growth-minded. Uh, my experience working for other big companies and, and having hired tutors who previously worked for other big companies and, and decided to leave for various reasons is that it, it's just a fixed mindset, which is what a lot of medicine is. is the student comes to you with a goal. They come to you with a test date in mind. They tell you what they want. 
And you say, okay, I'll, you know, I'll take your money, I'll meet with you and I'll do that. And I don't think people are viewing it as like, wow, I can really change this student's life. I can be there for them in a time when they have like extreme anxiety. I can potentially, you know, help connect them with other resources to change the way that they take care of themselves during stressful times, the way that they, you know, take tests their rest of their life, the way that they believe in their own intelligence and their own ability. And I really look for tutors who are growth minded, who know that students can improve their test taking ability, improve their intelligence through effort, because there have been studies to show that you can improve your intelligence through effort. Um, I think that some people do really well on tests, not because they're smarter. I think the way that certain people think is geared towards doing well on these tests. And the way that certain people study is more efficient. And you can teach other people to do that. And it's all a changeable thing. It's not fixed. And I really look for teachers who believe in that. And that's not something I experienced or saw anywhere else that people were looking for that shared belief among the teaching staff. Um, I've, you know, read various books. One that really stands out to me is Mindset by Carol Dweck, who's a psychology professor at Stanford who populated this whole idea of growth mindsets. And she's, you know, shown that students of teachers who are growth-minded do better. If you think, oh, this is someone who's coming to me failing on their first practice test, there's only so well that they can ultimately do, that student's not going to do as well. So I think having that, that joint mindset and that ethos of the company is, is something that's different. We also think ethos. we really believe in I love it. Yeah. <laughs> we we really believe in individualized medical education. Individualized medical education is more expensive. It's time intensive, it's one-on-one. So that's why we have need-based pricing. And I think, you know, that partially is very reflective of my own personal politics, honestly. But that's the way that medical school is. Or perhaps, right? you know, what you read during your undergraduate years oh, kind of seeps into your this marrow, you know? This is true. Yeah, I think that there's plenty of people who, you know, they're already spending a ton and investing a ton on medical education. And it's the appropriate thing for them to get this help. Their school's not going to offer it, right? And, you know, why should someone who is very well resourced pay the same as someone who's pulling themselves up from, you know, like a first generation immigrant background and doesn't have those same resources and has the same exact difficulty with taking tests? I don't think that they should be paying the same amount for that service, if that's something that you can allow and afford and, you know, have tutors who, who believe in that same mindset. Um, so that was something that was really important to me. And I don't believe something that exists at other companies. And I think is reflective of sort of, this is a, a by medical students for medical students kind of organization, taking people who are either students or recent graduates who did really well in this test and have a lot of teaching experience rather than career business people who don't, haven't taken the test hiring other people or people who are so many years out from the exam, um, hiring people. And I think talking to students who have like talked to other companies, it's a very anxiety provoking time. And it's so easy for companies to take advantage of that and sort of upsell people and convince them they need more help than they really do. And I think it's by virtue of sort of like being a recent medical student and someone who takes out loans and someone who knows how much of an investment this is that sort of protects us from some of those practices and well, you know we're very open with students about things like that. Yeah, and and granted this type of service is like a, a higher cost thing by the very nature of it, you know. Of course. Yeah. Building the the platform and the tools and paying others to offer the service. But tell me more. So you're saying you 
almost give like scholarships for need. Yeah, it's essentially it's essentially like a um, a discount that's proportional to the amount of aid people are getting from their medical schools, and we'll look at people's estimated family contribution and things like oh, that. Wow, the people who are awesome. qualifying for the most discounts, thank you, um, are are generally people with zero dollar family contributions. So it's definitely a, a sought after program, but we try to try to help as many people as we can through that to make it a lot more affordable. As you said, it's a, a higher cost service and that reflects the fact that there's very few people out there who are in their medical training, have gotten you know, 250s, 260s, 270s, 280s on this exam, who are also amazing teachers who have the time to do this. And you do have to incentivize them more. And, and our model is we, we kind of pay our tutors about twice as much as other companies tend to. And that sort of reflects, you know, a company started by a tutor has a little bit of a different view. You're just not going to get the same quality teaching if you're you're working for a company that's paying the tutor one-sixth of what they're charging the, the student. Um, and I think in general, free resources like online med ed are appropriate for most students. I think it should be viewed as like a very select service for students who are really struggling with test taking or need to make really large score improvements. Um, and that's part of what we tell people when we we talk to them on the phone for like free consults for advice. And that's part of why I love doing it too, is like talking to people who don't need it, who just need to be reassured because it's just a really anxiety provoking time for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, man, I think this could go on uh, <laughs> forever, yeah. honestly. I have so many questions I want to ask you. So first off, I'll say, please come back and let's do this again. As you can tell, I can talk at length. And talk over you when you try to ask me questions. Hey, that's there's, that's there's awesome because, no like, we're lack of words. We're gonna have one. like five podcasts in the next three months, probably. So the less talking I have to do, the better. Um, so no, you, it, it's really been a delight. But what about students uh, who they're going into step one kind of season? What should they do to get in touch with you? How do they know? Like, maybe I should do this. Uh, sign up with USMLE Pro and get. Uh, a, a personal tutor coach. Just go to the website, usmlepro.com. Yeah, that, that's how you find us. And I think even for people who are just sort of looking for advice on their, their study plan and just like want to talk to someone who's actually taken the exam for 15 minutes and see like, oh, am I on track to do this correctly? I think the kind of people for, for whom individualized education for these exams are important are people who have kind of struggled on standardized tests previously and who feel that their standardized test performance is not reflective of their knowledge. Um, I think it's, you know, very often students are coming to us if they failed their first practice test um, and have very large score goal differentials. If you're the kind of person who scored a 230 on your first practice test and it's, you wanted 250 and you did really well in the MCAT, you can probably do that on your own. If you really struggled on the MCAT and you're interested in a really competitive specialty, you keep failing your practice test, you're stuck and you hit a score plateau, that's sort of telling you that the thing that you've been doing um, thus far isn't necessarily going to work. I think a lot of people can find useful resources on our blog. It's just usmlepro.com slash upro dash blog. Um, we can put that in the, the text somewhere, but yeah. there's a lot of articles we have about how to make effective Anki cards and, and use active learning strategies. And I think that's appropriate for a lot of students. I would say overall, the biggest mistake that students make is not taking practice tests early enough, not doing active learning strategies, doing practice questions, doing spaced repetition flashcards, and then, you know, not trying to improve their test taking ability. If, if that's something that they need to do to improve their score and assuming just that 
you know, if I memorize everything, I'll do well, which unfortunately isn't the case for some people. They, uh, they really can benefit from improving various systematic test taking errors or cognitive biases they're bringing to the exam. And those are the kind of people who, who end up wanting to, to work with us. But I hope the vast majority of people out there, you know, have a lot of success studying on their own. But for people who are, are having a really tough time, know that plenty of people get individualized education for this exam. It's obviously a, a really career determining, really scary thing. Um, and there's, there's no shame in getting some, some help from it. You don't always have to tough it out alone, even though you're going to be a doctor. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time. And we will definitely do this again. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. All right, Boards Insiders, our dedicated listeners, we thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We have a lot moving with ITB, with the release of our app any day now, and the addition of multiple podcasts to our family to help you study smarter, not harder, to help you learn to think like a question writer. We are launching a contest thanks to physicianloans.com asking for you to do various actions like share our episodes on social media, leave a review on iTunes, different things like that for which you get points. We'll have multiple prizes, but the grand prize is your USMLE or Comlex registration fee. Whether you've taken the exam already or not, first through fourth year U.S. medical students are eligible. The campaign will launch soon, so go to insidetheboards.com Sign up for our email list to be the first to know. Thanks to Chris Zeru and Logic for providing us the song 1-800-273-8255 off Logic's 2017 album, Everybody. This song we've picked to feature this month because it is the number to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And for us, it's just a a statement about the importance of mental well-being, not only for patients, but also for you, our listeners. So stay healthy, stay strong, study smart. We'll see you back next time.